From the LA Times Studios, you're listening to The Real, your source for all things entertainment. I'm Mark Olson. And it's springtime here in Los Angeles, so what better time to return to the land of Gilead for season two of The Handmaid's Tale? I'm joined here today for a conversation about the show with some of my colleagues from the television desk. Yvonne Villarreal. Mary McNamara. Lorraine Ollie. And Lorraine, now the first season of the show ended right where the book ends. And so this second season is kind of picking up right from there. So why don't you sort of catch us up on where the new season gets going? The new season, the first 15 minutes of that first episode in the new season is possibly one of the most terrifying and moving and sad and intense first 15 minutes of a premiere episode that I've seen. It's picks up where the last one left off, but then you already know the terror of these women and how they're living. And for anyone that hasn't really kept up with it, these women are living in this dystopian future, controlled by men. They are essentially called the handmaids. They are there to breed and they are owned by men. And this is simplifying it hugely. But when we come back in the second season, there's the pushback. And the pushback from the women means more terror and more violence, but also potentially liberation. Yvonne, I know you've done some interviews with some of the makers of the show about season two. Tell me a little bit about what, given the fact that they're kind of like on their own now, they're off book, what were sort of their directives or what was the thinking about in creating season two? Well, so Bruce Miller is the showrunner, and he told me that he's been thinking about what happens next since he read this book in a new fiction class at Brown University. So he's had time to sort of in his mind, think about it. But obviously, they didn't start really having conversations about season two until the middle of season one. And he talked with Margaret Atwood, the author of the book, to sort of think about where things pick up. And that's where we get to see a little bit of the colonies. We expand into some of these things that we just heard about in the first season. He really explores some of these other areas. And Mary, I remember you had spoken to Margaret Atwood at the, the Festival of Books last, last year. year. Yeah. What are some of your impressions of where the story can go? Does, is it something that she, how, how okay do you think she is? Oh, she's thrilled. She's mm-hmm. fine. She's excited. She loves Bruce Miller. She loves the fact that it's on television. I mean, Margaret Atwood is amazing. I mean, prolific novelist, poet, essayist. You know, she's and has adopted technology. She's just incredible and I mean, one of the things to remember for those who haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, and I really would encourage everybody to read it because it is a terrific book, is that it is presented as a historical document and it presented as if somebody is reading this diary that they have found in a future in which they, you know, kind of like, I can't believe this happened kind of thing. So as uh, Yvonne or, or Lorraine said, it ends with Alfred being hustled out of her house by, with the help of a guy who has become her lover, who is also overtly part of the secret service of this new theocracy. What's it called? The Eye. And she's pregnant. You know, so the, the suspicion is now she's going to freedom. But you don't know how she got there. And that's where it ends abruptly. And in the book, they talk about, we don't really know what happened to her. This is all we have. They were on tapes. So we assume she got to a place where she was able to record tapes. So, I mean, it can go anywhere now, literally, because there's this huge gap in time. When the actual book ends, it's at a conference that's being held hundreds of years after this. 
they can do whatever they want. They can follow her journey. They are obviously following the journeys of other characters who were not as big in the book who have been developed for the television show that are going in all these different ways. The colonies, you know, which were just mentioned in the television show as this horrible place where you get sent and you die of radioactive poisoning. That's something that was not explored in the book. So, I mean, it's really kind of amazing. You know, the scary thing of it is how how far, how much suffering can we endure? Because the way the book was constructed, you know, it's just like kind of this horror, but it's brief and it's never fully explained exactly how it happened. I mean, it is, but it's like very briefly explained. And now you're seeing also, I've seen the first episode where they are like explaining how this theocracy sort of came in as military as it is theocracy, but that's what it is. Lorraine, it seems like the creators of the show in talking about the second season, it seems like they're signaling that it's going to be even darker, even grimmer than the first season. And in some ways it's hard to imagine television getting darker and grimmer than the first season of the show. What are your impressions of kind of like the tone that they're striking and why it is that they're sort of continuing in that direction with the show? The feel bad show of the spring. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, you know, I've seen the first three episodes now and without giving anything away, it is dark. I don't know if it's darker than the first season, but it certainly starts off in a much more terrifying place, I would say, because we didn't know in the first season if you hadn't read the book, whatever. You just didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it's interesting because the idea that this is something that in the future they're looking back on as, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. And we talk about now the parallels in Handmaid's Tale with what's going on with women's rights being pulled away. It's actually happening for real if you look at what happened with women in ISIS, if you look at what happened with those girls kidnapped. And, you know, I mean, this stuff is happening. So the idea that, gosh, we get to one place where we, in the future where we can look back and go, I can't believe that happened. What a great place that would be. It's interesting, too, because I just want to add this quickly. Westworld also came back this week, another series that was highly awaited, second season. And in coming back, it's got a really similar sort of storyline in that the women, and they are female robots, but still they are the females, are controlled by these men. It's a revolution. They're trying to break free. And the parallels there are really interesting because you wouldn't have seen that throughout the first seasons of either of them. So I don't know. This definitely is the spring of women who are being controlled fighting back. Well, I remember when the first season of Handmaid's Tale was coming out, there was a bit of a kerfuffle over whether or not to even label the show as feminist. Have they moved well past that? Or is that still in some ways one of the sort of motivating ideas of the show is like how to think of it or what is the show saying about these things? I would look at it like this. I mean, I think the idea before of anything being labeled feminist was like, oh, no. You know, nobody's ever going to watch that. And now, you know, maybe it could be looked at as a selling point. I don't know. But I, I guess that's a cynical way to look at it. But it's just a really excellent drama. I mean, and it really sort of hits at the core of things that terrify us right now, especially as women. Also, it won, won eight Emmys? Five. Five, okay. And it was up for one best drama. One best drama. I mean, First streamer so, to win best drama. Yeah. So overall, I mean, just as a drama working on all different levels... I think, I mean, in terms of feminism, Margaret Atwood has been like gone back and forth on the word feminism because it has been defined in different ways by different people. But I mean, this book was written in the 80s and it was written as a reaction to the rise of the religious right in the United States. It was seen very as like this return to the woman in the home, the return to women can't make a decision about their bodies were taken to an extreme. What would it look like? 
for a while, the book, I mean, it never fell out of favor. I wouldn't say that. But people weren't reading it as much as they were when it first came out. It was huge. And then I think everybody thought, oh, well, those problems have been solved. And now we've seen a rise again of the religious right in a different form of the Tea Party and form of like very conservative viewpoints. And so I think it's incredibly relevant again. The thing about feminism, and I identify as a feminist and will until the day I die, but, you know, it does put the burden on the solution on women. And I think she feels, and many people do feel, this is not a problem that just, you know, afflicts women. And you see that in The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, men are abused and hanged. And in the first episode, they have to stone a man to death because he has, I forget what he did, whether he was an abortion doctor or he just looked at them crossways or whatever. So she makes it very clear in The Handmaid's Tale, although it's told specifically from the point of The Handmaids, all of society has been put into these very narrow roles except for a few members of the male power elite. And even their wives who were part of the revolution have been subjugated their wives, their secondary. And all the other guys are either enforcers or they're dead too, so. Well, it seemed like the cultural response to the first season was framed around the sort of the defeat of Hillary Clinton and the sort of the rise of Donald Trump and, and people responding to that. So with this second season coming as it is in the aftermath of the convulsions of Me Too and Time's Up moment, Is there some connection there? Do you think that this second season will be now framed kind of around that narrative? I mean, I think reading the second season now, because, you know, when the first season rolled around, you're right, it was Trump, Clinton, it was all of this stuff. And also the idea that, you know, Trump came into power with all these issues with women and what he had said about women, he admitted how he treated women. So now we're looking at Me Too, women speaking out, men falling for not just bad behavior, but abusing women, controlling women. And I think it's probably going to be framed in that way as, okay, look, there's like retribution. There is payback for this. I mean, you can also look at Westworld like that, too. I mean, there is a comeuppance for this. And in a certain way, it's really satisfying. As grim and as dark as the second season has started out to be with Handmaids, there's something really satisfying about the idea of breaking free from it no matter what, no matter what the cost, no matter what you go through. You're just going to break free of this and hopefully destroy it on the back end. Mary, what do you think the show has tapped into? Why do you think the show has been as popular as it's been? First of all, it was amazing. I mean, it was just beautifully acted and beautifully shot and just like nothing we'd ever seen on television. And also, I mean, I think it did this idea of if you take these kind of notions to their extreme, what does it look like? And this is what it looks like. And I thought the television show actually did things that the book was not able to do. In the first season, there was a wonderful scene where Glenn, I guess, the and his wife, and they, this is before the revolution, before the theocrats have taken over. You know, they're talking about it like, oh, it's going to happen tonight. It's happening tonight. And they're sitting in a movie theater. You know, it looks like an AMC and they're eating popcorn and they're watching a movie. It looks so normal, like something that we would do. And they're overthrowing the government. And you see a little bit of that in the first episode of the second season where they're watching on television. It's like, you know, someone's opened fire in the Capitol and something has happened at the White House. There's been an explosion. It's presented in this way that's like, oh, this could actually happen. I mean, we live in a world of mass shootings. We live in a world of where things blow up and and that it's homegrown terrorism 9.9 times out of 10 that's doing the damage. 
And so, yes, I think that that feels real. I don't know. I have not seen more than I've seen the first episode. But one thing that I'm hoping that it's doing and that I think that Margaret Atwood has tried to address in some of her other writing, and, and I assume that Bruce Miller is talking to her at least, is that when you have this kind of a mentality of control and power, everybody suffers and everything suffers. So it's not just the women. It's the environment. It's the economy. It's the children. It's the everything. And I hope that we're going to see that, that this is not just the women. The handmaid is the most obvious and striking feature of this new society, but it's also everything else. And that total power corrupts totally. Ivana, among the Emmys that the show picked up and it's for the first season was one for directing for Reed Morano. And a lot of people have really talked about the visual style and sort of the craft of this show in particular. And in your interviews with Bruce and, and the rest of the cast, was that something they talked about at all? I, th- I think that this season, again, they're going to have uh, like an even split between male and female directors. Yeah, there's a very quote-unquote cinematic visual style to the show in general. And a lot of, uh, we had Madeline talking about coming into the colonies and the way we come into it, it looks beautiful, sweeping landscape images. But once you sort of zoom in on it, it's these women working with toxic waste. It's not that beautiful, really. But the visual style is really something to behold. And those, they look like concentration camps. Yeah. It's so just brutal. You mentioned how this was also the first drama series from a streaming service. Like, what does it mean for a company like Hulu to win a prize like a whole raft full of Emmys these days? Well, I mean, in this era of peak TV, it's so hard to break through the clutter that winning a handful of Emmys really says to people, this is something to watch. And for Hulu, it really put them on the map. You know, Netflix spends like $6 billion on content, and Hulu's often viewed as this underdog in the streaming world. And it really said, here is something. We took the slow and steady approach, and this is what we're giving you. And they had some big players before the show came out, like 11 which was their James Franco series. And They thought the path was going to be something big, too, but it was The Handmaid's Tale that really sort of planted the flag for Hulu. And then this has also been big for Elizabeth Moss as well. She won an Emmy, too, and I think it's it's interesting where she'd already had this seemingly sort of defining role on Mad Men, and it's interesting to see her get this sort of second big role here with Handmaid's Tale. Mary, for you, what do you kind of think of Elizabeth's performance and the fact that she's been, and also I think as, as a producer on the show, too? Well, she also had Top of the Lake, which was really, she's for Sundance, which was really good and sort of her first lead role. And she was really amazing in it. No, I mean, she's everything and she's amazing in it. And her career now will know no bounds because she can literally do anything. But I also, I wanted to add to what Yvonne said, which is that ever since the explosion of television, which arguably began, I mean, people say, oh, The Sopranos. And it's like, okay, yeah, Golden Age of Television. But it really started when AMC went into original content. It was when a non-premium cable network decided, okay, we're not going to just show old movies. So we had Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And after that, you saw every basic cable network come forward with their new, you know, their original content. And the model is you come out guns blazing. You throw like Hatfields and McCoys for history. You like throw movie stars. You throw big directors. And you try to get an Emmy. I mean, like that now is the business model. You come out and you plant your flag, exactly as Yvonne said, because then you're a player. And for Hulu to do it before Netflix, before um, Amazon is pretty amazing. I mean, that like nobody saw that one coming. And I like the path a lot, too. And I think they did have higher hopes for that. I mean, it was a little nishy, I think. But yeah, I mean, and it had Elizabeth Moss. I mean, Elizabeth Moss is the it girl. She's 
talented and beautiful and a chameleon, fearless. And um, I mean, it's just amazing. And should be noted that Joel Stillerman, who was at AMC, has now come over to Hulu as their chief content officer. Ooh, I did not know that. Smart. Then does that now become part of the challenge is to not just have a success like Handmaid's Tale, but to then follow up on it? Like you need not just one show, you need a lot of shows. Well, I mean, Hulu has a lot of shows, and I think a lot of these places have stuff. And so it's just to get people, I mean, for the streamers, you want to break through the Netflix thing and you want to say, oh, well, you might as well have us or have us too. They followed it up, I mean, this year with The Looming Tower, which was a Jeff Daniels and Peter Sarsgaard and sort of looked at the lead up to 9-11. I don't know if it's been a splash in sort of the critical buzz in the way Handmaid's Tale has been, but it is something. It's an excellent series. But I just have to say also the idea of having more to follow it up with, I think part of the problem with Netflix is there's too much, right? So it's this idea of the Hulu approach is much, seems much more targeted. You're saying get the top talent. Netflix does that, but it's just so drowned out in so much other stuff. And I feel like Hulu kind of streamlined that idea, and maybe that's the way to do it. I also want to say a word for Harlots, which also premiered. Love it. I love that show. And it's so like, good. you know how Modern Family eclipsed the middle? It's like Handmaid's Tale eclipsed Harlots. And everybody should watch Harlots because it's just as good. Yes, it's just, and it will be coming back It's a different kind of show. Yes. Uh, no, I'm going to show my, my movie desk ignorance here. I have no idea what Harlots is. Uh, Harlots is a drama set in, I want to say, 18th century London about prostitutes. But it's so great because it is totally told from the viewpoint of the women. And it's women creators on it, and I believe directors as well. So it's looking at prostitution, but through the eyes of the women. And the Deuce kind of did this too on HBO, but Harlots does it better. Now, why do you think that a show that you all seem to like so much, like Harlots, hasn't caught on or hasn't gotten as much attention as Handmaid's Tale or any other, you know, The Alienist or some other similar I think that was just timing because it came out right around the same time as Handmaid's Tale. There was a bunch of other stuff at that time, and it just wasn't like a front burner thing. And I think it just got buried. And to get back to talking about The Handmaid's Tale, tell me more about that opening sequence. So Alfred's in the back of the van when we come back to her in the beginning of season two thinking that perhaps this is the escape. You totally think that. Yes. I totally Yeah, and that. she thought so too, right? Because, like, and they, so, don't they say yeah. Mayday right. at yeah. the end? Yeah. When she gets the to the destination, open up the doors, and it's this, it's the empty stadium. It's Fenway Park, Fenway right? Fenway Park, yeah. It's empty. And you look at it, and my first thought was, oh, my God, a stoning. Mm-hmm. They're going to stone them to death because that's the imagery it brought, and it's a lot of other handmaids that are there. And they walk them up to well, first, the... they put a muzzle. Yes, yeah. right. They put a muzzle, they put a on, muzzle them. on there. And then they're put through these tunnels. They're like cattle. Like cattle. Like cattle. cattle shoots. See, I thought that it was going to be like they were going to shoot them when the British came in and shot up the soccer stadium in India. Yeah. That's what I thought of. Yeah. And then they walk them up to, what do you call those? Are they gallows when, they, when they're ready to hang people? And there's like 30 of them. Yes, yeah. there's rows of them. Um, and it's and, just silence. And then we get the music. And they're dogs. Yeah. It's got all this imagery from, like, you know, that you've Everything. seen in terrifying scenes of the dogs, you know, yeah. attacking pro or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Everything's added into that. They all walk up. They put the noose around their neck. And it's just, it feels like an hour of just waiting to die. It's really difficult yes. to watch. It is. Because it is. it's like, you know, those moments when you just can't imagine anybody who is about to be executed for whatever reason, like just the knowledge of what's going to happen. Well, and because you think maybe, okay, June will be okay because she's, you know, right. our right. heroine. 
but will the others be okay? There's like 30 of them. Is something going to happen to them and she's fine or what's going to happen? And then it won't be okay if she's okay and the rest of them die. So no, no whatever, whatever the outcome, it's bad. But, but what I really liked about that scene, besides just how it triggered everything that you've ever experienced in a million different movies and reading about history and all this stuff, is you're sitting there and you're going, how can they kill all of these women who are fertile women when, like, the whole deal is the fertility rate has been cut by 80% or whatever? And then you're thinking, how is it that the women who control the future have, like, somehow ended up as slaves? And then you start thinking, how has that happened in the world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that the gender that basically controls the future of the species is the one that has struggled for so long. All of those thoughts were going through my mind while I'm watching it because I am thinking there's no way, you know, she doesn't die. I know she doesn't die because I've read the book, but you are wondering because the guy said before she gets in the van, trust me. And you're thinking somehow she won't go and everybody else will. Or that he deceived her. That was the other thing. You're thinking he deceived her. Like all those things while she's standing up there, the one person I trusted deceived me, the last man I trusted deceived me. So then the executioner pulls the lever for all of them to drop through and die. But it's mock execution doesn't happen. They just stand there. But they it's just, you know it's that form, it's the even worse form of torture, right? And the, like one woman is like wet herself, and yeah. they're holding hands, and and Aunt Lydia's standing there, and she's awful, and I love Anne Dowd so much, and she's just awful, and you're just like, oh my god. Anyway. But it's the cruelty of it, and just the psychological warfare on that one. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. No, you're not. What's going to be worse, that you didn't die and now you have to live in the society? And they're being punished, by the way, because these are the same handmaids who were supposed to stone to death one of their own, and they refused. They refused This to was do their it. punishment, right. And then the storyline continues, and that's the other thing that I think they do really well, is they show, you know, psychological torture and the breaking down of personalities and how you keep a group that should be united, divided Just they do that really well. And I think that that is a universal story for, you know, all sorts of people throughout history and right now, which is that when you look at it, you go, you know, there are more of you than them. Why are you not rising? It's how did this happen? Well, here's how it happened. And I think that all sort of sets us on our way in talking about season two of The Handmaid's Tale. I wouldn't be surprised if we talk about it some more as the season goes along. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the on the Internet? Uh, I'm at Virilli on Twitter. I'm at Mary Mac TV on Twitter. I'm at Lorraine Ollie. And for the Los Angeles Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson.